I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Seriously, the podcast from the New Statesman that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week we're going to be talking about the pop culture things we're looking forward to in 2017, and the first episode of the new series of Sherlock. Caroline has also read Sarah Taylor's The Shore for the first time, so she'll be telling us how that was later in the episode. Hello! Hello! Welcome back to Seriously after a Christmas break and our two Christmas specials, which we really hope you enjoyed. We had lots of feedback, so thanks very much. We had a few people get in touch to say that they actually quite enjoyed To Walk Invisible, the Bronte thing that we kind of quite cruelly rejected. Yeah, that was on our festive TV special, wasn't it? We did not like it. (laughs) Uh, My family absolutely loved it, I have to say. There we go. I think maybe it was a matter of context, you know, because you and I were watching it on a slightly grainy preview, like Mm. in the busy couple of weeks before Christmas, whereas my family and I'm guessing a lot of listeners were watching it like with a cheese board Mm. in front of the fire. Yeah. You know. And at that slower pace Mm. in the year, because it is very long, that that program. And I think maybe you're just more amenable to extremely long and not that racy programs when you're sort of horizontal and have quality street in your mouth. We also watched the second half of The Witness for the Prosecution since we recorded our thing. I was right about the casting. Yeah, you absolutely were. I love Billy Howell. Did you think he was good? I thought he was great. I thought he was really good. And so was she, Andrea Riseborough. The villainous scene with them with champagne in their hands and like nice wedding gear on was really like cool I liked it yeah I was when you said in the special actually that um (laughs) you were particularly interested in his casting because he'd played the like wrongly (laughs) accused person um in glue who actually did it who actually did it I was like Anna's just tumbled this whole thing I can't let on (laughs) (laughs) I did like the way they went for the ending which is like they make you think that the grand reveal is that it was the maid all along and at the whole time I was like, damn it, I really thought that it was the guy. Because they, they quite cleverly set up this whole thing where it's almost like women v men. Mm. And it's like, actually, women were the murderers and they're tricking you all and they're such horrible, duplicitous people. And she has this great scene where she like screams, you fucking men, which I love. Yeah, and then at the end you're like, oh no, it was the guy. Yeah, yeah. men are violent. And even our blessed Toby Jones is, you know, we sort of are like, yeah, you're kind of rapey and mm-hmm. violent yourself. Yeah. So... 
I really enjoyed that. I liked the uh, the gender politics of it. I liked the sort of vindictiveness of it. I thought it was great. And I like as well how it's definitely a story where Agatha Christie plays with the idea that everyone expects her to do like a really complicated, elaborate murder mystery. And then, then she's like, no, Occam's Razor and the man did it. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I also found it a lot more joyful the second half than mm. the relentlessly bleak first half. Oh God, all of the coughing and the fog. So that was great. We've been reading some of your emails that you've been sending over the festive period. And we've had a really nice one from Davis Carr who gets in touch with one of my favourite starts for any kind of contact they go long time listener first time recommender (laughs) (laughs) which I love because it's like an old fashioned radio caller isn't it it's like long time listener first time caller (laughs) (laughs) makes me feel like this is a proper thing Uh, we are Alan Partridge (laughs) so anyway Davis gets in touch to recommend a podcast slash concept album called Buffering the Vampire Slayer which is two feminist broadcasters discussing every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Love it. Not only do they do great recaps with a queer feminist lens, they also do recap songs at the end of every episode. This sounds amazing. It sounds absolutely incredible. So someone got in touch recently to say like, I'm a huge Buffy fan and it's sad that Seriously Never Discusses Buffy. We kind of agree. I am trying really hard to get into Buffy. I've never really, I've seen like the odd episode. My friend's a huge Buffy fan and over Christmas we watched a few episodes and I'm going to buy the dvds slash download it all on amazon and try and get through it so i need an episode by episode accompaniment and this sounds perfect yeah i think it sounds great i mean i'm a massive buffy fan and i watched it at the time it was being first broadcast in the uk Mm. when i was still at school so Mm. it's very much like a core teen show for me yeah but i'm also i might not manage to do an entire rewatch but i'm definitely gonna like go back and watch some of my favorites and enjoy this podcast so thank you very much davis for recommending that speaking of programs to watch with an episode by episode recap someone's got in touch emily to say hey i'm a newish listener to seriously it's made me realize that my thoughts are highly unoriginal but in a really comforting way (laughs) which is absolutely what we aim to provide she says she started listening when she was hyping herself up for the gilmore girls revival but wants to recommend the amy sherman paladino show bunheads so same creator as Gilmore Girls, and it does have some of the same cast. I know Kelly Bishop is in Bunheads. Mm. She says, whilst not without problems, I love the show and see it as a positive progression from Gilmore Girls. Also, it's a great example of a show not being taken seriously because it's, quote, about dancing, has a majority female cast, and this one arguably has some weight, a twee aesthetic. But she says, because we seem to be developing an interest in musicals and classical film, it also might interest us for that reason. I definitely really want to watch this. And I know that the guys who ran the Gilmore Guys podcast are now doing a Bunhead Bros podcast Ah. um, for 2017. So they will be doing episode by episode recaps as well. So I'm really, really up for this. Thanks for getting in touch, Emily. So you might have noticed that over the Christmas period, we we put out our Love Actually special again on the feed to introduce it to people who've subscribed, you know, since we first did that. And Claire has got in touch with some thoughts about it. She said, although it was touched on briefly in the episode, I wanted to highlight the often missed creepiness of the hot Carl character. Well, this is what she's termed him, and I agree. Good name for him. <laughs> yep. In an earlier scene, Alan Rickman confronts Laura Linney about her extremely obvious infatuation with Carl and mentions that even Carl knows that she's in love with him. Claire then says, I always struggle then that Later in the film, Carl and Laura Linney seem to have ended up in her bedroom after the work party, given that he knows she's in love with him. Surely a more genuine response would be to actually get to know her, you know, ask her out, whatever. Um, She said, I may be way out of practice, but it seems almost predatory to me that he's moved right along to the shagging. As in because he's taking advantage because he knows that she'll probably just give in. Yeah, so if he actually in any way reciprocated or was interested in finding out if he reciprocated, he would have said after the party, like... 
let's have dinner yeah, in a really sexy maybe. way. That's that's the dream when you're yeah. infatuated with someone that they're going to do that rather than just bang you. Rather than going home with you, attempting to bang you, then getting turned off by the fact that you have a brother. Yeah, I think that's the real <laughs> the real downside to Carl's character. I think perhaps more importantly is that he like hears that she's got a brother with like mental health or developmental issues, and it's like mm, it seems a bit much for me. <laughs> like fucks off, and you're like, great, cool, a caring guy. Yeah. So anyway, thank you very much for that thought, and I'm glad you enjoyed the Love Actually special. And I hope anyone else who found it for the first time that you know brightened up your Christmas. We've had an email from Maria who gets in touch to say that she's a listener in Los Angeles but has a British recommendation. She says for long trips, I highly recommend the audiobook of Georgette Hayes the Grand Sophie read by Sarah Woodward. It's a historical romance set in London just after Waterloo with a fun meddling protagonist in the style of Austen's Emma. That sounds really fun to me. Our colleague Helen was saying recently that historical fiction is her favourite genre but it's really hit and miss in terms of quality. Yeah I do agree with that because I feel like the continuum from historical literary fiction right down to like bodice rippers that are worse than Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm. It, it is a continuum it's not like it's several defined genres yeah i agree so I, it's quite nice to get a word of mouth recommendation in yeah that definitely case. so thanks maria so we thought we'd start the new year by discussing the variety of things that we're excited for in 2017 there's loads coming out and i'm sure more things will crop up as the year goes on one thing that we're both really excited about that is coming very soon is a series of unfortunate events on netflix which comes out on i believe the 13th of january so very soon. I was a big fan of the book series. Were you? I've read the first one and that's it. Ah, interesting. I did really like it, but I think I'm just slightly too old for it, if you know what I mean. Like, Possibly. I watched the film with Jim Carrey and Meryl Streep mm. and stuff, though, and I actually quite liked that film. Yeah, I really liked that film, but as I've said before, and I wrote in a piece, I remember watching that on DVD and just being obsessed with the Daniel Handler commentary, which I found so mm, much better okay. than the film. So Daniel Handler does a director's commentary. Obviously, he's not the director. He does like a whatever that they call a non-director's commentary as Lemony Snicket in character. <gasps> really? Okay. And he does all these weird things. He like does a song about leeches halfway through. And it's just like this, because the, the real success, I think, of the Lemony Snicket series is the voice of this yeah. Lemony Snicket character who's constantly going, oh, whoa, but I... These these poor orphans you can never know what miseries will reach mm. them next but he's really funny and that was better than the film for me mm. and then this netflix series has that frame narrator okay that's good yeah. um and it seems to be a much from just from the trailer i mean i don't know how how representative that will be of the show as a whole it seems much more involved with the minute to minute narrative so okay. i'm also just like a massive fan of violet baudelaire yeah me too i went as halloween for her like two years in a row when i was a kid i loved her so yeah anything that gives me more of her i'm excited for that should be really really fun and also neil patrick harris playing a really hammy character which oh really he, yeah yeah he's yeah. he's count olaf the main <gasps> villain Yay. um it's gonna be fun i think it's gonna be really fun so exciting stuff another thing coming next week is this bbc series taboo which i've seen adverts for and it looks really really good it's got a really great cast tom hardy so i think that could be really fun and it seems to be quite violent it's set in like victorian london but looks all a bit weird in some way i don't know yeah, if, if it's I actually like i don't really know the backstory of it but it looks a little bit steampunk yeah exactly in a way, doesn't it exactly and i don't know if that's just the style or whether that means something so basically i don't know much about this but i'm excited and it looks quote edgy and lots of people are being like this is the like antidote to downton um so <laughs> i don't need an antidote uh, to downton. Uh, who does <laughs> but i do think it looks quite fun yes. so we'll definitely be watching that it's possible to like both styles of yeah exactly a massive thing for the uk hamilton comes to london this year i know and i feel like 
I was a very, very late Hamilton convert. Yeah, this... I'm sure we've had lots of conversations on the podcast where you've been like, I just don't get it. I know. And then I finally <laughs> got it about six months ago. Yeah. And I've been completely obsessed with it ever since. So although it's not coming till November, tickets go on sale at the end of this month. They do, yeah. So, God, what are we going to do? I don't know. I hope we get tickets. And failing that, I hope we get press passes. But who knows? I don't know. But um, yeah, I'm so excited because... The main way that you can consume it without seeing the stage show is the soundtrack, yeah. which is on Spotify, which I listen to pretty much every day. It's and so good. Also, now the the mixtape that came out in time for Christmas. I actually haven't really experienced the mixtape very much. Oh, the mixtape is amazing, not least because I think everyone thought it was going to be contemporary artists reworking of the songs, and mm. in some cases it is. But in other cases, artists have taken like one line of dialogue and like built a whole song around it. So That's it's really fun. it's like original music that isn't even in the show mm. so which is really interesting another thing that i'm excited for is the i love dick tv show yeah so when does this happen it's on amazon right yeah yeah i don't know everything i've read has just said in 2017 okay. quite helpfully i did try and find a date or a month but i couldn't so the pilot came out in maybe the summer of 2016 yeah it's jill soloway at the helm and she's really good yeah she so, did transparent right yes yes yeah. It's such a difficult book to adapt, I think. But I think that's yeah. partly why this is a fun project, because mm. it's going to have to do weird things in order to exist. Yeah, because it can't just be the case that it's like a constant voiceover no. of... Or the her... reading out of letters. Yeah, or... yeah. so it's going to have to be more... What I would love as well, actually, is if it plays with time. Yeah. If it I'm messes sure... up the chronology, that would be really interesting. We discussed the pilot of Motherland that was on BBC Three, or part of their comedy feel season, Yes, um, and that's been picked up for a full season, hasn't that's it? That's been picked up for a full season and I think could be really fun. I really enjoyed it. I found like the bitchiness of it really like entertaining. Yeah, I think Graham Linehan and Sharon Horgan writing and then Anna Maxwell Martin acting is like my dream combination. Yeah, that should be good. And I'm also really looking forward to White Gold, which is another sort of comedy by Fudge Park, which is the production company that did The Inbetweeners and it's all the same writers and producers. And it stars Ed Westwick as an Essex car salesman and it should be really, really funny. We're about to enter awards season, mm. so there are a load of films either out or just about to come out that are obvious Oscar nominations. Mm -hmm. I am most excited about La La Land, which I have not seen. You have seen it a ridiculous number of times I've now. seen it three times, yeah. I know there's this whole, I don't know if people are really like plugged into the film Twitter conversations that I'm like constantly plugged into, but oh my God, the, com the circular conversations about this film have just been endless. A lot of people really like it. A lot of people really don't. And think it's quite soulless and stuff. So I'll be interested to see what you think. I think there's some been some good criticism of the like. There's a lot about jazz in this film, mm. and there's been a really good piece by Ira Madison III, who's a writer at MTV, and he just did a really good piece, basically being like, "This film white explains jazz," which is true. I think it's definitely true. But I still really, really love this film in its problematic glory. So I would encourage people to go and see it. There was a great tweet by the New Yorker's TV critic Emily Nussbaum the other night where she said. I haven't seen La La Land yet. I really look forward to seeing it, loving it, and then arguing with people on Twitter about it. Yeah, exactly. I just love it. And I will say that there are certain like themes and ideas and stuff that I always return to, that I like write the same piece like six times a week. <laughs> and this hits all of those things <laughs> for me. Other like Oscar-y films that are coming up, Moonlight I'm very keen to see as well. I loved Moonlight. Um, I saw that at the London Film Festival as well, which was in the summer. And it's just beautiful i can't i can't wait to see it again i think it might actually be the best of those films even though la la land is probably my favorite mm. if that makes sense and then what are the other kind of 
big hits coming. Manchester by the Sea I haven't seen yet. It's meant to be like impossibly sad. It's about grief. Lots of people are raving about it and I'm sure that will do really well. There's also Jackie with Natalie Portman, mm, the yeah. Jackie O biopic, which I'm really interested to see. Apparently the score is amazing, like really, really amazing. So I definitely want to listen to that because as seriously listeners know, we quite like listening to music without words while we're working. So that yeah. might be great. We love a soundtrack. Yeah. And then I also saw Christine at LFF. Mm about a journalist who works for a, a tv company and there's a documentary about her as well coming out this year so i don't know why she's been the subject of renewed attention this year but she has but if you research any details of her life then the way that you would watch the film would change quite a lot because there's one big thing that everyone knows that, that happened to her and the film is is written with that in mind it's sort of you could definitely really enjoy it knowing what happened and mm. it definitely plays with that as a sort of like dramatic irony throughout the film but i did really enjoy watching it not knowing what was going to happen that's Rebecca Hall in the lead role and she is amazing because the film isn't that good but her performance is amazing like absolutely amazing so I hope she gets an Oscar nomination for that and then there are some things returning next year like Stranger Things, Master of None, things we really enjoyed Mm. um, this year and the year before and Twin Peaks is being revived which should be cool. Yeah so that's another of our big watching projects for this year isn't it so Mm -hmm. we're we're kind of doing Buffy and Twin Peaks because neither of us have ever seen Twin Peaks. We've both got DVDs in hand ready to go and then one thing that we also wanted to mention that we both <laughs> quite love is that The Worst Witch is coming back to CBBC. <laughs> I know. And I mean, it's a, it's like a, it's a remake, isn't it? Yeah. It's a, yeah. So this is coming really soon. So I think um, I've already got the preview. I haven't watched it Same. yet. So we need to do that, I think, because although it's a children's show and it probably, it might not be, you know, that sophisticated for um, some of our audience we like doing things like that on seriously so we'll probably take a closer look at the worst witch in the future hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. to midnight one minute to go one minute to say goodbye before we say hello 
Let's start the new year right Twelve o'clock tonight When they dim the light Let's begin Kissing the old year out Now we're going to talk about The Six Thatchers, which is the first episode of the fourth season of Sherlock. It was written by Mark Gattis, was loosely based on the Arthur Conan Doyle story The Adventure of the Six Napoleons, and saw Benedict Cumberbatch, Martin Freeman and Amanda Abington return as the BBC's most profitable sleuthing trio. Loosely there is a loose term in itself. (laughs) Yeah, it is the loosest of looses, but basically, you know, obviously spoilers herein for the first episode of Sherlock, if you still care about that. But um, why? Why do you care? (laughs) I feel like this is becoming a first episode of the year tradition for Seriously that we like Slater Sherlock. I know, I got really confused because John, our colleague, who wrote an excellent piece trashing this episode of Sherlock that you should all read on newstatesman.com, we'll put it in the show notes. He was saying the last episode in this series was two years ago and I was like, that doesn't make sense because Seriously didn't exist then and we definitely covered it, but it was a Christmas special. It was a Christmas special, yeah. Um, the, the last full series was 2014. Yeah, so the plot is carrying on from 2014, not the Christmas special from last year, which you're already kind of setting yourself up to fail, I feel like, in that regard. But if only they had, like, for example, done a recap that made sense and then done like a sensible plot in this episode. But no. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, John was absolutely bang on with all of his criticisms of it, which is that Sherlock is no longer about a man who solves crimes. It's now a kind of James Bond soap opera about a man whose best friend is married to a former secret agent. Yeah. Which is why we say that it is very much loosely based on a Sherlock story, because the six Thatchers, the titular six Thatchers mystery probably takes up about 15 minutes of this 90 minute long program and it's not like you get other mysteries to pad out the time any mystery in this like starts and is solved within about 10 or 15 minutes or even less in some cases like 20 seconds yeah exactly while that's all fun to be like oh sherlock he's so good at solving crimes it's also a bit like wait i thought i had like signed up for a mystery program and instead it's literally as you say just this completely incomprehensible rambling plot about like ah you know your wife who is a secret agent you thought you know everything about her well you didn't know this also i'm having an affair also like what i mean what are you doing why are you having an affair when your husband is a mastermind detective and your wife is an ex-secret agent great move (laughs) he would never do he wouldn't just be like on a bus see a fit woman and be like do you know what i'll start texting her no one i know would uncover that (laughs) wait you mean the two people closest to you in your life of course they'll know anyway john also just wouldn't do that yeah there was no motivation presented for that whatsoever character assassination and i assume that woman on the bus is going to be more than we think she is in later episodes she's obviously going to turn out to be like actually his wife in disguise or something (laughs) something weird oh god yeah there's all sorts of problems with sherlock as well i feel like people come back from the dead an awful lot in Mm. sherlock and so then when people die it actually doesn't feel that emotional even if they are dead properly so spoiler alert john's wife dies in this episode and it's, I think, quite a feat to have a character in a series, especially a character who is, on paper, as interesting as Mary's character mm. is, and for people to just not really care when they die. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think anyone really cared about Mary's death. I know, I genuinely thought there was going to be a, like, after-credit sequence of her, like, pulling off her bulletproof <laughs> vest and her and Sherlock high-fiving and be like, full John this time. Yeah. 
our, our they, long game continues or whatever. Then maybe they break into song. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no one I knows just, with Sherlock anymore. I just really thought, so she jumps in front of a bullet that's aimed at Sherlock. And Which I was is like, dumb. Like, oh. This is part of some bigger plot, right? She can't actually be dead. And then she was doing her all like emotional last words to John being like, take care of our child. And I was like, oh. Yeah, I didn't didn't care, which is bad for a, a, a show when it kills off a major character. Someone tweeted, "Oh, if Moriarty bombed them all, I'd send him a fruit basket," which is like really something to say about a program, especially one that people have stuck with for over three years. Mm. Like people are really frustrated with this show at this point. I just find it overly complicated in the same way that Doctor Who goes overly complicated because it likes to think of itself as like really really clever as mm. a program and so it is like aha got you you didn't think of this is like often the move that it goes for which works in programs that are ridiculous and hammy like jonathan creek you know these shows that we really love because you're just like this is ridiculous i'm laughing mm. but in a show that thinks that it's clever it just comes off like so annoying and also that has all of the time and money invested in it to make it look really slick and plausible because I think part of especially an early Jonathan Creek, what helped that feeling was that like it was all done on quite low budget and you could like see all the strings, etc. They didn't have any computer effects mm. in the first few episodes. Mm -hmm. And it was literally like a man in a monkey suit what did it, you know, yeah, that exactly. kind of stuff. So that was why you felt like that about Jonathan Creek, where, you know, obviously it has a fraction of the budget of a James Bond film, but they have gone out of their way with this one to make it look like a James Bond film. Yeah. So it should be good. And the reason we are not explaining the plot, listeners, is because it would literally take full 90 minutes to explain yeah. the whole plot of this program because it's so windy and ridiculous. Imagine how good this show could be. I mean, I don't like Benedict Cumberbatch, as everyone knows, and I don't really like the character of Sherlock. They've gone with that, that sort of like fetishizing male genius mm. slash you know lack of social ability that weird combination that we see in like house and other programs and not really into all that but i do think this could still be a good program if for example it had been like maybe four 40 minute episodes about little ghosty like spooky christmas yeah. mysteries that would have been fun just like wait this seems like it was a ghost how can we, you know, in that Jonathan Creek way, in that Agatha Christie way, it would have been or really fun. Or actually just do the story of the six Napoleons, mm -hmm. which if you haven't read the short story, I highly recommend it because the way it works is that I think two or even three of the busts of Napoleon get smashed before it comes to Sherlock Holmes's attention because different policemen just think it's like a petty break in crime. Mm -hmm. And then I think it's Lestrade or one of the other like detective characters realizes that there's something really weird happening because people steal the bust, then take it outside and then smash it mm -hmm. and Sherlock works out that it's because they want to smash it under a streetlight to see something that's in it or right. something and eventually he like tracks down where the other busts are and finds that you know someone stole an incredibly priceless jewel and got cornered in a workshop and hid it in, and a, hid bust. It in a bust and has been now trying to track down See, that's fun. And that's fun and that's unexpected. And I don't think it's a particularly well-known Sherlock Holmes story either. So it wouldn't be like everyone already knows the answer. Mm. So just do, even if you have to do 90 minutes, like do 90 minutes of that. Yeah. Whereas I think there's this like, oh, you thought we were going in this direction with this. Lol, we weren't mm. thing that they always go for in Sherlock. And it's like, well, congratulations, but it becomes a bit cheap eventually. What do you think of the point that John made in his blog where he said that, you know, the greatest mystery of Sherlock is why am I still watching it, yet I will still watch it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I would still watch this series if it weren't for Toby Jones. 
I want mm. to see how I want to see this character that he has in the next couple of episodes. But otherwise, I don't think I watched all of season three, one or two. I just dip in and out of it, which might be why I'm so confused half the time. But I don't think that is the reason. And there's also, I mean, I was talking to John earlier and he says he also feels that there's an element of when you start writing something for the fans, for the hardcore fans of something, like The Cursed Child maybe did, that it becomes very difficult and fan fiction-y and doesn't feel quite right. But then I do think there are lots of ways that that can be done really well. So I'm not sure that's the whole story here. I think half the problem is just that all these men think they're like writing like the most out there weird drama ever, and actually someone needs to be like, "Hey guys, rein it in." <laughs> yeah, and I think there's you know the added layer of the fact that Sherlock's become a massive commercial property for the BBC, mm-hmm. so I don't think they're getting much oversight mm. from the channel, being like, "Actually, no, we're not giving you ninety minutes this yeah. time. You've got forty-five. Yeah, you know. So I think they're just being basically being given free reign, and this is what happens when showrunners of middle age get. <laughs> Yep, free reign. Exactly. So, so we weren't overjoyed. We weren't overjoyed. I would just like to mention one moment that I quite enjoyed, mm-hmm. which was the dog. I also enjoyed the dog because I thought of you watching that because it's around the corner from your house. Yeah, it is. It's just around the corner from my house and he goes and fetches this really nice basset hound and they go for a walk. I said, is that XXX square to my family? And obviously they had no idea. And then I was like, it is. <laughs> it is. Just FYI. Yeah, yeah. so that, that bit was really good. And actually that is... An acute dog, I can't remember dog. if that's from the Six Napoleon story or from a different story, but there is a... A Sherlock Holmes short story where Sherlock sends Watson to go and like get Toby and love it. And Watson thinks that Toby is going to be like some crime expert and then yeah. Toby's a dog. That sort of like reference to the original stories I really like. Mm. And I do think they sh- if they were weirdly more faithful to the books, they might have a more surprising program. But anyway... Join us next week for more hating of Sherlock. No, I don't think we're going to do it again. So last week, Caroline dipped into Sarah Taylor's The Shore, which is a short story collection. Caroline, what did you make of it? I absolutely loved it. Did you? Yeah. I thought it was amazing. And I haven't read all of it, but I really, really want to. Which stories did you go for? So I read the first one, which is set in 1995, I think. Mm -hmm. And then I skipped ahead and I read the most futuristic one. Yeah. It's set in like 2143 or something like that. And then I also read a 1930s one. Great. I think think that's a really good spread. So I tried to go for a chronological spread. And just to explain to listeners, that meant I was jumping around in the book all the time because they're not in chronological order. Yeah. I think the the last one is the most futuristic, but apart from that, they're not really in any sense yeah. of any chronological sense. I, I have to say, though, I was well disposed towards this book from the second I opened it because it starts with a family tree. Yeah, it's and great. And I love a book that starts with either a family tree or a map or both. Yeah, that is just absolutely the goal, isn't it, in yeah. any great book? I also love the family tree because every story you flick back and you're like, ah, I see how this relates to the other stories. Yeah. So it's a massive, like, generational jumping about, isn't it, between one extended family really Mm -hmm. i think the characters that i perhaps most liked are the sisters from the first story which is a great standalone story that i would really recommend people 
try and find. It's just the most brilliant like archetype of a short story. I All the time I was reading it, I was thinking about the introduction that A.S. Byatt wrote to the English book of short stories, mm. in which she like outlines what the criteria for a brilliant short story oh, i must read that and that she well because she does it in explaining what she's selected for the anthology right. and basically this short story just ticks all of the boxes like That's great. strong immediate characterization like a really well drawn but not overly described setting and then an amazing twist yeah it's got a great contained but exciting plot so there are two sisters growing up in the 90s their mother's dead and their dad is kind of an abusive violent figure and that kind of sets you up for the whole book because the book is so much about women who are experiencing patriarchal violence and they're just really strong really interesting with like a great perspective that really comes through in the writing so I think that's why I liked that first one so much and so as well as having the family in common all the stories have the setting in mm-hmm. common because the the book's called The Shore it's explained I think it's in the first story isn't it it's mm-hmm. explained that The Shore is this little group of three islands off the east coast of America mm-hmm. so you get to see it well in the three I've read I've seen it like in the 1930s I've seen it in the 1990s and then I've seen it in a, a kind of un specified like slightly post-apocalyptic yeah landscape as well which is a great setup that final story because mm. i think the place throughout the whole thing has almost that's kind of creepy not quite post-apocalyptic but this very strange vibe um where it seems quite scary in its sort of like closeness to this enormous ocean and its isolatedness from the rest of the coast because it's sort of on a limb a bit by isn't it connected by only by one road so yes, it's slightly by a kind on of a causeway limb. yeah so yeah I, I thought that final story really like took that to the logical extreme altogether it reminded me of two books that i like very much one i've forgotten the name of the author but the book is called ella minnow p like the alphabet both it's the it's a name so ella minnow p and then ella minnow p as in yeah. the middle of the alphabet and it's set on a small island off the east coast of america and it's all epistolary and it's letters from the titular ella back to like a cousin on mainland America and the reason it all kind of ties together is because this island is where the person who invented the phrase the quick brown dog jumps over the lazy fox no the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy I said it wrong but you know what I mean that typographical phrase that people use for testing out fonts because it uses one of every letter in the alphabet and so it's about typography and writing and women and stuff but it's set on this small island but then also the last story reminded me very much of the furthest future bit of David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, where it's actually a, a similar kind of idea in some ways. It's a kind of telescopic thing of connected people through different times, although not explicitly a family. And the furthest forward one is similarly a kind of post-apocalyptic society. And it's also written in a, a slight kind of dialect. It's got some new words that are based on rememberings of old words and that kind of thing it's kind of an inversion of children of men i thought Mm. as well that kind of the setup but if you're interested listeners you should go and read this book because it's really really cool it's really cool so for next week i'm going to recommend you a uh, i don't even really know how to describe (laughs) this like it's a strange children's tv show i think from the 1970s which my boyfriend and i watched over christmas and got completely obsessed with even though it's very very odd it's called box of delights and it is based on a novel from the 1930s by a guy called john macefield who went on to become the poet laureate and stuff so i get the sense it was a big bbc production for the time and 
it's got a not unfamiliar plot. It's about a boy in the 1930s coming home from his boarding school for Christmas and he has some kind of sinister encounters on the train with some vicars who seem to like turn into wolves. <laughs> uh, and then it's a bit like Narnia, but it's got a strong kind of pagan element to it as well. And yeah, he has these kind of good against evil adventures. But one of the things I like most about it is that obviously they didn't have the effects necessary to show like people turning into wolves mm. and stuff so occasionally it just breaks into animation oh great or sometimes you know like there's this one character who gets referred to as rat all the time is <laughs> obviously a man in a rat costume but you're not sure whether it's like we're supposed to accept that it's a giant rat or we're supposed to realize that it's a person in a rat suit if that makes sense like, yeah or the, is it a small rat and we're yeah. looking at it through the imagination the, of the, the child or the effect what? is ambiguous that's fun it's all actually available on youtube these days so Great. anyone who wants to can give it a go well caroline that sounds truly strange <laughs> and i can't wait thank you Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, including in iTunes, where you could leave us a rating and a review because it helps other people find the show. You can also get all our back episodes on seriouslypod.com, as well as details of how to sign up for our newsletter and information on what events we've got coming up. Also there on the website, you can find our specials on Home Alone, Gilmore Girls, Harry Potter, Love Actually and Friends. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr, with Pod on all of them. We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show, or just hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed. You can get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.